Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The COVID-19 pandemic is rolling around the world, extinguishing expected futures and opening up the possibilities of different ones. At FuturePod, we have decided to speak to our previous guests and ask them what this moment in time means for them and, more importantly, to all of us. If you would like to know more about the guests we speak to, then please check out their earlier interview on the website futurepod.org. Today, our guest is Rowena Morrow. Welcome back to FuturePod, Rowena. Hi, Peter. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Rowena, where are you in the world and what's going on around you? So I'm sitting in the eastern, outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne. I am currently, I think we're calling it on sabbatical now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to find a phrase that makes me feel better about the fact that I'm enjoying an elastic period of time that will uh, be over soon. But I'm at home with family, which is great. And we are lucky enough to have a roof over our heads and income coming in. I have, my kids are past school age, thank goodness. Um, My son finished year 12 last year. So he was having a gap year until March and now is having the worst gap year ever, quote unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a real real gap. (laughs) So, I mean, to give him his due, he's really... um, made a life for himself within the confines, as we all have within the confines and the boundaries of what's possible. But as you can imagine, there was a period of grief as his future that he'd imagined came crashing down around his ears in about a 24-hour period, three jobs he lost, you know, all the travel he wanted to do was over, all that stuff. So it was um, quite heart-wrenching in March watching him go through that. Mm. But, you know, other members of my family have lost jobs, lost businesses, um, and for others life is relatively normal. You know, their job's still there, they're studying or they're catching up with friends or, you know, so it's, it's really interesting how this is quite different across different people. And I think as the shock of it wore off across early April and things became a bit more normal. You know, for some people that was horrifying. For others it was sort of comforting. So mm. I guess, you know, that's that's where I am. Very interested to see where we're going to be in a few weeks' time. So I guess my experience of COVID nineteen and wanting to talk about it, I've been really resistant over the past four to six weeks of putting my stake in the sand. I really didn't want to come to judgment. I was um, looking and observing and talking to people and reading and just really wanted to see what this was. So I've taken the opportunity, I guess, of having this time to speak with you to really reflect on what it was I saw. And, you know, any good futurist starts looking forward by looking back. So when I think about COVID-19 for me, and, you know, at the beginning it was the novel coronavirus. We didn't really have a name for it. I started to hear rumblings or see rumblings on social media in early January. So some of those I'd been late to the party on. There'd been some um, people talking about what was going on in Wuhan from December 2019. And there were colleagues in the States and other people starting to recognise that this might be a thing. And that's interesting to me, that early recognition. They obviously Mm. 
patterns in their brain that they'd picked up from either their training, because some of them were emergency management professionals or futurists, but they had ways of being able to get data that for many people just went straight through to the keeper. They just didn't see it as important. For them, it was quite important. And I've seen photos of people in, you know, late January on international flights with masks and gloves on. So, Mm. you know, they were really early. Mid-January, I started talking to my, my immediate family in this house about, you know, maybe we should start stocking up. And we did. We started buying a few little bits and pieces every time we went shopping just to make sure we had 14 days worth of food. And I think you and I had a, a quick chat over text somewhere in mid to late Jan where you asked me if we were actually doing anything and I said, yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> And at the point you checked in with me, then I felt confident enough to check in with wider members of my family at that stage. Right. So I started sending texts out saying, all right, you know, we've been doing this, but you know I'm a, a bit of a prepper when it comes to this stuff but I've also now heard that other people in my circle are also doing it so you guys might want to think about doing it and um, it was interesting doing that so you know we'd had other issues in the 90s we'd had a gas issue in Melbourne where we had no hot water and we'd had a I'd had a visceral experience of that so ever since then every time there was any sort of whiff of um, issues due to bushfire or flooding or anything else I've been known to to prep a bit <laughs> in the face <laughs> of that so it was interesting talking to especially my my sort of wider family about you know you might want to start doing this because they'd heard me talk about it before so it was it was an embarrassing it wasn't you know they gave me a bit of stick about it but it wasn't I didn't feel uncomfortable doing it but I, I was working at that stage in an organisation. I've been brought in to do some transformation work. So I've been working very closely with a group of people for six months doing some really fantastic stuff. So we were, you know, we had a great working relationship. But I reflect on the fact that I didn't talk to them about it. And I've been trying to work out what that was about. And it wasn't, it wasn't that I was embarrassed, I don't think. It was that I didn't have a hook. There wasn't a social hook or a social pattern that I could use as a segue into you guys need to start buying some more groceries. Yeah. There was just no way in. And so I didn't. Um, apart from being weird, apart from literally blowing your cover as someone like you to know I'm actually not like you. Yes. And I hadn't done that with this group. In other work situations I have, I've walked in as you know, the freak that talks about the climate emergency and how civilization's on the brink, et cetera, et cetera. But th- with this group, because I'd walked into a fairly traumatic situation, I didn't feel that adding more trauma <laughs> or more pending trauma was going to be helpful. So I hadn't brought that p- persona with me. So when this turned up, there wasn't a Rowena that could have the conversation. Mm. And it was just... A- on reflection, I'm, I'm still finding that fascinating and I think there's something in that in terms of what else does that apply to in the world that we're facing into and how might we have conversations that are almost impossible. So that's, you know, that's a point for me. I guess, you know, as we started to see countries like Taiwan move really early, so Taiwan started inspecting plane passages coming from Wuhan on New Year's Eve and then they actually banned Wuhan residents at the end of January and then banned all Chinese visitors at the start of Feb. So as countries like Taiwan and I think Hong Kong also really moved quite quickly, as they started to move in February for us in Australia and for other people around the world, 
it was obvious something was going on. But I think still for most people in leadership positions, for most leaders, it was still situation normal. So I have heard from some um, Australian suppliers that they started to buy up in February. They, they realised that, you know, this could be a thing. And much like we had with our two weeks of groceries, they thought, oh, well, I'll just order a bit more just in case. In February, we also started to get the great toilet buy-up happening in Australia, much before, I think it was a week or so before it happened in other countries. And what was fascinating about that to me was the number of people that stole toilet paper. So I've been told stories about how toilet paper was stolen from um, storage from organisations, so from shopping centres, from community organisations. Like People actually stole it. I find that Mm. extraordinary. Anyway, but still our political leaders at that point were still downplaying the pandemic they were either unable or unwilling to see what was coming. And I think if we'd asked them at that point, they actually couldn't imagine life as we know it right now. They couldn't imagine that from where they were in February, we'd be here in April. So, you know, for many of my friends, um, their operation, their organisations were still operating normally. You know, the next project or the next report was still the most important thing to them. And then, We get into March. So my last non-family interaction or non-household interaction was the 8th of March. So I started self-isolating from them and I wasn't the only one at that point. I knew people who were immunosuppressed who were also starting to lock themselves away. So that was really starting to ramp up at that point. And um, I've heard since from organisations that, um, as one of my colleagues puts it, uh, people started to go put their underpants on the outside, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is just such a beautiful way of describing how organisations shift from business as usual to crisis management. And it happened very quickly. There was a real scramble for some organisations to get their people out and working from home. I've had someone describe to me we had to make up 15 years of not keep, not keeping up in the space of three weeks. So it really, for some organisations, it was a real scramble. For others, they'd already been operating like that. For, so for them, it was more about doing scenario planning around what could possibly go wrong in terms of their infrastructure, in terms of their supply lines, all that sort of stuff was starting to happen. So interestingly for me, listening to these stories, hearing the rise of scenario planning, I think even the Prime Minister in Australia mentioned it in mid-March that they'd done scenarios. Now, I know scenarios go on in government and go on in larger organisations, but they're not often talked about. So it was really interesting from a foresight perspective to hear that type of methodology turning up. Also, you know, March, businesses started to fall over. Um, People lost their jobs. They lined up for uh, in Australia for unemployment benefits for the first time. Just horrible stories. I've got a number of friends who are um, accountants for small and medium enterprises and it's just, you know, it's a very traumatic part of the uh, community at this point because for some people they watched a whole life's work go up in smoke mm. and really trying to work out how the hell they were going to come back from this. Now for us in Australia... It's been interesting because all of that, so this three months worth of activity has followed on from some of the worst bushfires we've ever had since uh, white occupation. So, yeah, we've we'd had an experience of literally things going up in smoke and we'd had the experience of watching our political leaders respond very badly to it. So we thought of 
I thought we'd seen the worst of what was coming at us at that point, sort of, I guess, the end of January. But no, there was more. (laughs) There was more. So, I mean, that's the downside. I mean, I guess the upside is the other thing that's really hit me over the last sort of to the end of March was, yes, there was trauma. Yes, there was shock. There were, you know, decisions being made left, right and centre by the government. It was like whiplash at some stages. They were having press conferences at nine o'clock at night and announcing things that, you know, then went live at nine o'clock the next morning and people were working overnight to get stuff done. So, you know, there was a lot of activity. But what became so obvious was the amount of love in our society. So the number of people that voluntarily took themselves out, closed down their businesses, worked from home, stopped socialising, stopped going for drive, stopped doing the, the things that they do every day, I guess that for me is a form of love because people showed up for those that they'll never meet and took a hit personally for those people. And I just think that's extraordinary really that we've been able to do that. Now, April got a little more normal but also I guess things started to fray. So from the vantage point at you know, the bottom of the earth, when you look at the globe, um, we were able to see what was happening in other parts of the world and able to see the future that we would appearing to dodge. Doesn't mean we're going to dodge it forever, but at the moment, you know, we appear to have dodged the New York, the Italy, the Spanish and the UK experience. And that was both heartening but also slightly terrifying because it just made me realise on how few decisions and on how few people those futures rested you know all we needed was for one of our leaders to not toe the line to to break ranks to decide to do something else and we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now so it really speaks to me about how important it is for all of us to turn up for all of us to take responsibility in a situation and so I guess now you know when I look around and reflect and see what people are saying and doing, I guess the fault lines in our societies are really starting to show. So when you've got 10,000 people lining up for food banks in America, we've got family violence going through the roof here in Australia, mental health. We've got people who have missed out completely, temporary visa holders and international students have no money and no food. You know, we've got illnesses, people have stopped going to the doctor, so there's stuff going on literally behind closed doors. All of that's happening, but at the same time around here, you know, there's people checking in on each other all the time. We had teddy bears popping up in every window around the place so kids could do teddy bear hunts rather than Easter egg hunts. I'm hearing fantastic stories about how people are learning to socialise online, so big family gatherings on Zoom. Some of the young people around me told me how they were they were doing online music festivals with their friends, which is hilarious. Even with, you know, if you went to the toilet, you had to stand in front of the toilet door for 10 minutes just to recreate the feeling of <laughs> standing in line. <laughs> just absolutely fantastic stuff. Yeah, I think it's um, the fault lines are there. I'm, I'm starting to see and hear uh, writers much better than I am who, who have sat and reflected on what they've seen around them has been some beautiful pieces written by some wonderful people. And I guess 
you know, one of the things that's come through to me on those is a number of them have suggested that the pandemic heightens our ability to see where we're most vulnerable, but either in ourselves. So what are the things in our own selves, our own mm. systems, our own groups that we've, you know, that this has shown up, but also the, that the, the inequality that capitalism has built into our world, you know, the lack of local resilience, which seems to be a, a byproduct of our capitalism, but the class, power and race cracks in our societies and some of the planetary damage we've been doing. There's some great pictures of the Himalayas which uh, in India which people were saying that their generation had never seen <laughs> because of the smog. So, you know, we actually, I guess, for those among us that really need concrete examples of the impacts that we have on the planet, you know, you can see them around you. So I guess the other thing that we were we've been given from this time is a visceral experience that all the things we thought were immutable or unchangeable are obviously not. You know, we've shown in the past three months that we can radically change the way we do things. And so we know now that it's possible to do that in all sorts of ways that maybe we didn't really understand three months ago. I appreciate your analysis. You're looking back and looking forward. Now I'm going to push you to kind of say, what are the things that, if you're not looking for them, what are the things you are sensitive to now as we reach the next phase of opening up? So the things I'm really sensitive to this is that this is not as bad as it's going to get. The pandemic for me is a great dress rehearsal of all the ways we need to be, the thinking and doing that we need to bring to, into play to deal with the climate emergency that's still hanging over our heads. So as far as I understand it, 2020 is on track already to be the hottest year ever. Mm. So, you know, yes, we've had this short, sharp shock and things will not go back to normal. That would be the other thing. But I think what this has shown me and what I'm sensitive to is that there is good news. We actually have everything we already need to be different. But what it comes to is that to imagine a different future, we actually need to see our present through different eyes. And I think that's really important. We have to really start looking at how the normal that we're all wanting to bounce back to was not great for billions of people and was certainly not great for the biosphere that we're in and we inhabit. So what I'm sensitive to and what I'm looking for is how people have turned up so, you know, have we had people who are leaders or have we had people in leadership roles? And how would we tell the difference between those two? Mm. How have people made decisions? You know, in Australia, our political class has listened to the experts, the medical experts, and made their political decisions based on the expert advice. Our treasurer t- turned around and said that he made decisions, he consciously made decisions based on what was required for the country, not on ideology. Now, that's fascinating. (laughs) So in a crisis, we can do that. How about we do that all the time and especially all the time in relation to the climate? Well, again, it's another one of those things that we've seen leaders in a different light. Mm -hmm. We've seen leaders be better than we thought they could be and we've seen other leaders be probably worse than we could have imagined. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, and I've heard appeals to people's better nature rather than to fear or hatred which given the narrative we've had running in many Western countries for the last 10 years to 15 years, that's extraordinary. You know, we'll do this because it's good for us all to do it. Mm. I've heard clear purpose statements. If we do X, then we'll get Y. And, you know, Y is 
preferable to X. You know, y is preferable to Z, I mean. So, you know, yeah. if we lock ourselves away, then we're keeping the most vulnerable of us safe. You know, that's a purpose statement. That's something we can all align to. The other thing I've really enjoyed hearing both in the media but also in the stories people are telling me about what's going on in organisations is that leaders have gotten to the end of their conscious competence. So there's much more around um, we don't have all the information, I need to find out. You know, context is important. We can't make the same decisions in every context. Nobody knows what to do, so we'll have to make a best guess, try some stuff and iterate. So all of the things we know, the ways we know we need to lead in complexity, people have actually had a go at trying on in reality. And I think that's, so that's the stuff I'm sensitive to and I'm looking for. I've also seen and heard people starting from, so I think one of the great things about working from home is that home turns up around people. So people are in their bedrooms when they're on their webinars. They've got their washing next to them. You know, there's all sorts of stuff going on that shows people as people rather than people as roles or people as title. And so I'm really interested to see how that plays out over time. One of the stories that's come back to me quite strongly over the last couple of weeks in particular was when I joined local government in 2013, one of the things that I went around um, many organisations, the one I was in plus many others, asking people about the sector and their experience of change in it. And one of the things that turned up time and time again was at the start of 2009 in Victoria, we had massive bushfires. Over 150 people died. We'd had a huge heatwave before that where thousands of people had died. We'd had a huge number of properties damaged, destroyed, and a number of local governments were severely impacted. So they had to both work with their local community and across local government boundaries to sort out the situation. And what I heard from people who'd been involved in that was how much they'd enjoyed being involved in an organisation working to an outcome where people ignored their roles. Instead, they worked together to deliver what was required by the community. Mm. And the story I heard was by the end of 2009, things had started going back to normal. And the people who would tell me the story told me how much they'd wished that hadn't happened, Mm. how much they'd wished a new normal had turned up. And they really felt they'd lost something in the process of going from crisis back to normality. So I guess what I'm looking for is ways that we can build up in our imagination and create new ways of working to give us half a chance of coming through the climate emergency with a functioning civilization on a healthy biosphere. You know, that's the stuff I'm really looking for. I think it's, again, the way I would hear what you said, the, um, that people... People love working for purpose. They don't necessarily get their thrills out of working in a role. Yes. And we know how to, you know, there are lots of organisations around the world now that are purpose-centric, are purpose-driven and use purpose as the way of organising themselves and how they do what they do. So this is possible. You know, we know how to do this. It's not that somebody has to come up with a way of doing it. It's that a whole load of people can learn from what's already been done and implement that into their organisations. And we know it works. So I guess that's what the good news is. The other thing I've been doing, which I've been just loving, is um, looking for inspiration in writing, in art, and through, I guess, reading as much as I've been able to find around Indigenous ways of knowing. So I'm trying to find new patterns for my thinking. 
So when I'm looking for, or, you know, when I'm scanning, I can see new things. So I've actually been trying to consciously unlearn through this period is try to put as much stuff down as I can. There's some wonderful books out there where people have told beautiful stories around Indigenous ways of knowing. So I'm reading, I've read um, Sand Talk, which comes from the Australian Indigenous tradition, and Braiding Sweetgrass, which is the North American First Nations peoples. And both of them are beautiful examples of thinking quite differently around how, how we might be in the biosphere. And I guess the what the patterns that that's starting to amplify in me is looking for things or looking for ideas based on circular dynamics, on reciprocity and on regeneration. A lot of the work I've already done in organisations and will continue to do is to create processes and and organisational cultures that support and promote the mutual flourishing of people. And that mutual flourishing idea is really important um, in Indigenous ways of knowing, you know, the, the actual uh, visceral experience of the world is mutual flourishing in First Nations people. So I find that very interesting. I'm really starting, well, I'm, I always do, but I'm, I'm amplifying, looking for people who are thinking broadly about, you know, humans and our roles in the systems on in the biosphere and, and how we might weave our environment and the ways we work and how we live, how we might weave those together so that we all flourish, not just some of us as one species and not one species over all the others. So I guess that's in terms conceptually what I'm doing. Emotionally, I'm really finding myself drawn to spending time with and talking to people who start from the inside out. So they start knowing that how they turn up and how they do the work they do is absolutely central to the outcomes they're trying to deliver. So I've been very self-indulgent, I have to admit, (laughs) (laughs) and really spent time with the people I love. So I've been spending time with groups and people who have, I guess, taken the opportunity in their lives to develop a love of self, a love of others and a love of the world and it's been fantastic. So, yes, it's been horrible this period in many, many ways. But in other ways, I've just had such an, a, a wonderful experience of, of having, I guess, overwhelming gratitude is, is the feeling that I sit in most of the time, that I am lucky enough to have people in my life and access to information that means that I can reimagine how things could be. That all sounds great, but then what am I going to do with it? So that's the bit where you sort of have to get pragmatic and go, right, so who wants to hire me to start? (laughs) You know, how am I going to make these changes in the world? But, yes, that's what I've been doing, and that's, I guess, where I'm at. Thanks, Rowena, for taking some time out to spend some quality time with the FuturePod community. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. It's lovely to speak with you. (laughs) 